Overthinking It Podcast, episode 15. This is Matthew Rather. I'm on the horn with Peter Fenzel. What's going on, Peter? Hey, what's up, Cleveland? We love you. Well, Cleveland, we are actually farther away than normal this week. I am in uh, sunny California from the edge of America, from the home of the homeless. And I'm from the home of the homeless in north of the Charles River. That's Central Square, Cambridge. That's a local color joke. Hope those of you that appreciate it are laughing your asses off right now. That's Yeah, that's exciting. Harry Shearer, the guy who does all the, all the voices on The Simpsons, like everyone else is by, is by Harry Shearer, does a weekly radio show that I listened to a lot growing up out here in L.A. And, and um, it's, on a, it's, produced by, it's syndicated nationally, but it's produced by a public state, a radio station out here. And that was his sign-off, you know, uh, broadcasting from Santa Monica, a community recognized around the world as the home of the homeless because uh, you know Santa Monica has I mean has a uh, apparently a you know nationwide renowned homeless problem uh, that has to do with the fact that it it is the end of the Greyhound bus line so you know oh, wow. if you're a uh, of a particular route or something uh, and there's a it, there's a famous you know landmark in Santa Monica Greyhound bus terminal uh, that I think is now a yoga studio or something. But they keep the uh, they keep the sign up uh, because it's a you know historic Greyhound sign you know with neon bus letters and things like this. And so if you're a you know if you're a sheriff or something in you know, some some plain Bowen state. Brothers movie. Well, right, exactly, right. <laughs> and you you yep. want to get rid of your local drifter or something like that. The yeah. farthest place away that you could send him was Santa Monica. Now that story is probably apocryphal, but uh, but you know, I mean, that sounds yeah, that sounds to me like a movie that needs to be made. You know, I, I mean, it really does. The, somebody gets sent to the end of the Greyhound bus line and has to work their way. I guess they would just take a Greyhound bus back. But uh, it definitely seems like a very powerful narrative thing to do to somebody. And I'm surprised this is the first time I've heard of it. Yeah, I, uh, you, know, you, you go as far as the bus goes and then you have to come back. I think that, um, well, or you just go beyond, like like Robin Williams and Cuba Gooding Jr. in, uh, in that movie. Oh, and what, what Dreams May Come. What Dreams May Come. <laughs> yeah. Speaking, well, of, you- speaking of what dreams may come. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd say I've only seen three movies alone in a theater ever, um, and one of them was What Dreams May Come. Another one was uh, was uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and the third was Three Hundred. Um, and they all had a sim- <laughs> they had similar themes, but uh, What Dreams May Come was definitely the only one that will provide a decent segue into our next subject matter. What d- are the similarities between those two things? I mean, I just oh, what are the similarities between them? Yeah. Um, they're all movies that are really intense in the direction that they they play and if you're if if you don't want if you don't want to see that movie right after it comes out i don't necessarily see you popping in a month later and being like hey you know what movie we should really go see today like what dreams may come i mean i guess it's less so for 300 which got a lot of overall play but the the common situation for all of them was well the first one was i was home for christmas vacation and i didn't have anything to do so during college and i just went to the movie theater in new jersey but the other two it was definitely like everybody i knew who had wanted to see those movies had already seen them and i could either sit around and and be like man i wish i could watch that movie but nobody can go with me or i can get my ass to the theater, I can pay my $10, I can buy myself some Junior Mints, and I can play Siskel Sans Ebert 
uh, or Ebert San Siskel, depending upon you know whether you want how to be, you imagine me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> whether you want to be dead or just stricken with a you know with a terrible illness. No, that's a that's a big thumbs down. I hope he recovers. Yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, I thought they were all a little bit overdone in their own way. Yeah, <laughs> but well, right. I, I enjoyed them each. So you don't see you don't see movies by yourself a lot. You see film going as a like a primarily social activity. Yeah, you know, it's all about event film going, right? You know, when you talk about when movies stopped being a casual entertainment around the turn of the century and, and um, sorry, the turn of the century, like halfway through the 20th century and people went to TV more and more and the movie started declining, what was it that brought people back? You know, it was things like The Towering Inferno. It was movies that were social events, like events for everybody in addition to being entertainments, right? It's that this is the big release of the picture. This is the opening weekend. This is what everybody wants to see. Um, and if that's the motivation for seeing a movie in a theater rather than at home, why would you not go with somebody else? You know, why would you not say, hey, let's all go? Like, that's the excitement. That's the thing. Uh, I don't know. Do you see movies by yourself a lot? Oh, yeah, a lot. But I'm in a weird situation because I, especially more and more over the last year, um, I am in a place where I live in one city and then most of my work and increasingly my social life is in another city. Right. You know, so and I, I yeah, yeah. so like my, uh, you know, I, I work in New York when I work, I, you know, attempt to work in New York. I have friends in New York, my girlfriend's in New York. And, uh, you know, so I just, I live in Connecticut essentially as kind of a, a, a bedroom, a more, um, a, a cheaper bedroom community sort of, you know, not to, not to hate on Connecticut. You know, I, I like it. I like living in New Haven and I think it does not deserve, um, the home of the homeless moniker. <laughs> well, yeah, not. It's got it's got some problems, but I think it doesn't deserve the the you know really bad reputation it has among. Um, you like know, Southern Connecticut post-industrial towns. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah. or yeah, among you know among college towns generally. Uh, mm-hmm. Or among, yeah, southern Connecticut post-industrial towns. Though it is, though, I mean, you were making a joke like this about New Jersey before, I think, we were talking once. But, like, New Haven yeah. is, has been a laboratory for every failed social experiment, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Having to do with urban living of the, mm-hmm. of the latter half of the 20th century. You know, right, right, right. so like there are high rise projects, there are low rise projects, there are, there are boot cut projects, <laughs> there, there are hip hugger projects, bell bottom projects. Right, you exactly. Know, is, there are projects that have suspenders that are the only things holding them up. There it's, are projects, uh, yeah, there are like, you know, they have different washes and, you know, they're broken into different levels. I personally love the parachute projects. They're, uh, they really flare out in the middle. So long story nice- short, I go to, you know, I, because I live by myself, you know, uh, it's not like I have no friends in, in, in town, in the town where I live, but, you know, I, I tend to be on a different schedule than a lot of them. So I, because mm-hmm. I live by myself, I end up going to movies by myself a lot. And, I, you know, I know this is going to make me sound like a dick, but I, I do enjoy going to movies by myself because I don't have to pretend to care what anyone else thinks of it. Ah, interesting. You know, interesting. Like, don't you like? Haven't you ever? It's you know what it's kind of, you know what it's kind of like like the the Thursday grammar posts that I started <laughs> on the blog. You know, yeah. Um, I I realize again that I I'm being sort of a douche by you know by putting them up and like writing them in such a supercilious uh, and you know such an unqualified tone. And you know I'm I'm not. 
uh, naive about language and how languages change, uh, I think languages should should change, you know, as life changes uh, and the need to express different kinds of things arises. Uh, but, you know, but like this thing, it's like, um, uh, this thing, it's like, no, I don't think you're right. I don't think nonplussed means that. Or, you know, I, I don't think <laughs> short-lived is actually pronounced that way because I've never actually heard it pronounced that way, you know? And it's like, no, I disagree with you. And my to which my answer is like, no, you're wrong. And, like, I, I, I have conversations like that a lot after movies where it's like, no, you're wrong. It, in fact, was not yeah. a good movie. In fact, where like, you say that, or someone says that to you? No, no, no. Where I say where I say that to someone. You know what? And here's uh, the here's the example of it. I saw um, I saw a movie called Amazing Grace, which was okay. uh, which was a um, biopic. I say biopic. I've heard people recently say biopic, though. I think that's like I think that's sort of overcorrectness. I think that's people who like. Right. Well, I mean, there's definitely words that people only read and never really say, and I think that's one of them. Yeah, uh, I, people write that for a lot more than they talk it. I did, you know, I did when I was a kid. I did frequently mispronounce uh, the name of like the upright bass and the bass guitar. <laughs> uh, the word was it? I don't even still don't even know which is right, banal or banal. <laughs> I think it's well. If it, I think it's if you're French or not. I think I think you can say banal pronunciation. <laughs> You know, it's just a banal conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So I went to see Amazing yeah. Grace, which is about uh, William Wilberforce, who was a member of parliament uh, around the time uh, slavery was being abolished in Great Britain. OK. Or being condemned or, uh, you know, I forget. And there was some like, you know, act of parliament that was the sort of uh, sort of large scale structure of the story the the. Um, it was like the, the Emancipation Proclamation of England, basically. Of, of England, yeah, which, yeah. you know, was in the 19th century at some point. And, you know, William Wilberforce, sort of interesting interesting guy, abolitionist, but um, uh, but he had some skeletons in his closet or something like that. He wanted, you know, uh, he was a traditionalist about women's suffrage or something like that or, or women's roles in government or, or things like this. Anyway, this movie was essentially a hagiography. It was like, you know, it just turned the guy into a saint. It was just right. this – it was one of this feel, these feel-good movies. David Mamet describes it. I like David Mamet's writing about things like this. He describes a kind of work of dramatic art where the pleasure that we take in it as an audience uh, comes from – our having our prejudices uh, confirmed. I mean, mm. even if it's even if it's a, a common human decency prejudice, like our prejudice against slavery, you know, yeah, like I, you know, I, I, and it is a prejudice, right? Like it is a prejudgment. I prejudge slavery as being wrong. It is a prejudice. It's not a prejudice in the way that like racism is a prejudice, but you know, no. uh, little little lexicographical uh, side note there. But you know. Um, uh, and he he does he talks about like AIDS plays of the eighties and nineties where you know where it's like uh, we like to nod and like say ah yes yes the bad homophobes who are uh, you know persecuting the poor you know 
put upon uh, victims of AIDS who, after all, have a terrible disease and should probably not have salt rubbed in their their wounds or have insult added to injury by, you know, uh, ill treatment at the hands of others in the society. Uh, ah, yes, yes, yes. I understand this social situation. I understand this play. Uh, my prejudices are confirmed. And I think that there, this this movie this uh, was about, you know, um, the uh, you know the pressing moral question in the movie was like whether slavery was good or not, you know. Anyway, so I, I was with a friend who is. Um not someone I, I really see a great deal anymore, so I can be confident that, that he won't hear this podcast. Uh, but, you know, is an uptight guy and is a guy concerned with, like, moral rectitude a great deal and, like, how he looks to people and how things look and, you know, um, came out and was like, uh, came out of the movie and was like, ah, oh, that was a good movie. I'm really glad we, uh, we went to see that. And I, you know, I kept it to myself, but like my thought was, no, it fucking wasn't. Like that was the most treacly, you know, unsubtle, you know, badly ham-fisted, uh, piece of crap that, you know, I've ever seen. And you're an idiot. Anyway, uh, long story short, <laughs> I see a lot of movies by myself. <laughs> For obvious reasons, not yeah, only because so. because of of, uh, of of the the pleasure of, of being in a place where you feel like your opinions won't be judged, but also apparently because all of your friends are hamfisted idiots. <laughs> <laughs> no, not all of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I get, so wait, so if you're saying that, that movies that confirm our prejudices are things that we want to see, does that explain Soul Plane? Does that uh, – or the, the works of Tyler Perry? Uh, I mean actually you could go about it. I mean that's what sitcoms do, right? Like all sitcoms are, right. are, are pretty much about setting up – I mean also most of comedy, right, is about you know playing out the way that people are and the way that they live and reflecting that to the audience and having the audience respond to it sort of viscerally. Um, although I don't know. What, what do you think a movie has to do to be better than that, to like rise above that level? And can you give me an example of like a movie that you think really does it really well? Like if you wanted to teach a class on, okay, you know, don't – be, I mean, it's sort of like culinary. Well, yeah, you know, it's like, let don't, me go. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm gonna go not to a movie, but I'm gonna go, and I, I hate to always use this as an example of of this thing, but I think it is one of the the best works of dramatic art of the last couple decades. Uh, I'm gonna go to The Wire, right? Okay. Um, and it's actually David Simon says it in the introduction in one of the DVD commentaries, which I listened to because I like the show so much that I wanted to hear the writers talk about it while they, you know, while the episodes were playing. And he says that most television, uh, cop shows especially, exist to comfort the comfortable and to mock the afflicted. And, Interesting. Uh, yeah, and in this case, the afflicted would be the sort of the people on the sort of down end of the power scale, uh, the you know the African American people, largely poor, uh, who are involved in the drug trade in the show and get you know, um, uh, you know, and get rolled up on by the police and beat up and you know information extracted from them by you know methods that these days wouldn't pass muster at Guantanamo, and. Um, you know, generally, you know, generally ill-treated. And yes, they're selling drugs, and that is illegal, and it's not great for society to have, you know, people selling crack. But still, you know, uh, still people are people, and they have a, a dignity that is intrinsic, even when they do bad things. And um, that dignity is is just totally violated by a lot of cop shows where they take great delight 
in, you know, showing you the cops running down some poor black teenager or something and like, you know, tackling him to the ground and like bending his arms behind his his back and something like that. And like and in The Wire, they actually cut they cut all that out. They cut right from like the cops rolling up to central booking and like all that triumphalist, you know, sirens blaring, you know, cars um, rolling down the street. They, they just have no, no uh, interest in showing. And I think of a, a um, I, I think a television show that really the large point of which is that like uh, the extended bureaucracy in say the Baltimore Police Department is not like is not unlike the extended bureaucracy in um, like a, a, a Baltimore drug selling gang, you know, yeah. and that like everyone is sort of like there's this whole middle management, uh, you know, that like the, the only <laughs> job of which is is to keep you is to keep the workers miserable, you know, and like it's it's not a bad life at the top. But, you know, even the people at the top have had to like make compromises and sacrifice like i think uh uh where you say oh my god you know the organizational structure is is more or less the same between these two things and i'm I'm just talking about the first season now of the wire um uh i would say that that is a show that is not that is in fact not confirming our prejudices that is like making us question uh the difference between between good guys and bad guys um, right, right, right. Well, what, do you, what would you? I mean, I have only. Uh, I've got the wire coming up. My girlfriend just got the first disc of the wire. She's been sitting on her blockbuster queue for six months. You know, she's really excited to watch it. I hope to watch it with her as and go through it because I have never seen the wire. Um, so, I mean, I guess I don't really understand a lot of what you're talking about. But I am a big fan of the Shield. Uh, what would you t- talk about the Shield? How do you think? Because it definitely takes a lot of visceral pleasure in a lot of the sort of kinetic uh, and and kind of um, you know. Power struggle, and also all those sort of like Russian scenes and fight scenes and stuff. Because um, on one hand, yeah, you you get a free out because you say, you know what, the cops are terrible people. You know, you say that like, you know, they're they're not, they don't live. Ronnie's, by a I mean, Ronnie's not so bad. <laughs> well, I think that's well. I mean, I haven't watched the last week's episode. I'm probably going to go watch that after this. But I mean, over the next couple of weeks, I think you'll probably see uh, that go in a different direction. I think they're basically like, who's left? You know who's who's left to villainize that we have not villainized yet. Yeah. Um, but he might be. I don't know. Maybe he's coming next. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, and it sort of makes me look at myself and be like, "Wow, am I trying to like mock the afflicted in like watching these television shows?" Well, I, um, hold on, hold on. I think I think we can get a little too. I think I, I when I say mock the afflicted, I mean that descriptively. I don't mean it sort of like I don't mean to make a normative statement that like you know what if you take pleasure in any of these entertainments, uh, you know you you're complicit in uh, in mocking the afflicted or that is oh, it's, that, yeah. that is to say you are individually complicit in mocking the the afflicted. Though I would say that as a culture we uh, as a culture we we do that. It's not I don't think it's a thing where sort of your individual, you know, entertainment choices are necessarily uh, the biggest part of the problem or the most urgent part of the problem to address. Right, right. What would you think the most urgent part of the problem is then? <laughs> uh, honestly, I think there's... <laughs> oh, we're thinking solving the world's problems. Someone call your congressman. Well, we're so- going to make this all happen. Solving the entertainment industry's problems. I think there needs to be... Yeah. I, and, I, you know, this is something that we had a discussion on the blog about a couple months ago, but I think there need to be more, more people of color uh, making television shows. 
and not right. there's I mean uh, you know I'm an actor and I there are initiatives within the unions and there's a whole lot of hand wringing a lot of the time about actors of color getting um, getting parts on on shows and how there are no how you know the face of primetime television especially is Lily White with the exception of a couple kind of ghettoized. Uh, uh, you know, the outlets like like UPN used to be, though, you know, of course, that's gone now. And um, there's a lot of hand-wringing about this. And I, you know, I think that's, I think that's true. Uh, but I, I think that the real issue is getting, you know, getting people, uh, getting people of different backgrounds to write uh, to write entertainment because to write popular entertainment because I th- you know a lot of the the backgrounds of people who work in Hollywood are kind of homogenous and you know or kind of become homogenous uh, when when you when you go to Hollywood and it, it ends up with a kind of homogenous style of, of storytelling uh, so it's not I, I'm not you know na- naive enough to be an essentialist and and to say that like, well, you know, uh, African American television would be totally different from Latino television. Uh, would be totally different from you know Asian television. Though, I mean, if you've ever seen some Asian television, it is pretty different. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm, you a, know. I'm a big Naruto fan myself. Right. Uh, although that, that's a little bit that's a little bit different. Um, and I do prefer the books to the movie, to the television show, for for reasons that should be obvious to anyone who knows what I'm talking about. But. Uh, <laughs> But um, but yeah, I mean, let me. I mean, I could take this in a couple directions, but the direction I choose to take it in is to ask you about Tyler Perry and what you think about Tyler Perry, because I think this is a guy who has up and came to a certain degree, but is also to another degree up and coming. I mean, this guy, he's huge and he's getting huger, and I think that um, he might be breaking. I think I can, you could expect him to break a little bit more into the mainstream even in the next couple of years. Um, right. I mean, he's, I think well, that, he's like he's making a, a studio, right? Isn't he? Yeah, he's in, in, building a studio. Yeah, just just for why well, not? Is it specifically oriented towards uh, making films for African Americans? Well, I think or it's his own, I mean, I think it's for himself. I think it's for his own work. Yeah. you know. Yeah, or, well, then that's know. wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I think it's I think it's wonderful. I think a lot of his shows end up propping up, uh, propping up stereotypes. Well, sure, sure, of course. You know, I mean, Tyler um, Perry. Tyler Perry is an artist that, and well, I mean, here's what I here's what I think of Tyler Perry, and I say this, I say <laughs> this, I w- without really knowing his work, but I know about his business model because I've heard it discussed a lot on sort of entertainment business analysis programs that I listen to, okay. um, and I've heard him interviewed about uh, about what he does. Um, and you know, he was, I mean, he was really smart. He did not. Uh, he just kind of bided his time and let Hollywood come to him. He had a lot of offers uh, where he would have had to surrender ultimate control over his product, and he turned them all down, you know, right. and waited until, you know, he was just big enough that he could do, um, you know, he could do one movie, small movie, low budget, on his own terms, uh, and, you know, which was a huge success financially. I mean, relative to the relative to the cost of the film, and then do another. Are you talking about Are you talking about Medea's Family Reunion and Diary of a Mad Black Woman? Yeah, which one was first? I think Diary of a Mad Black Woman was first. Okay, yeah, sure, and, sure, sure. But you know, he had been um, self-producing uh, stage shows, right? Oh, 
for almost a decade before that. And he had his act. He had his his characters and they had, you know, stories, I mean, sketches almost that they, you know, that they would do. And he would dress in drag, which is, you know, a huge comic staple. And, uh, you know, he and this sort of repertory company of black actors that he had gathered around him would travel around the country uh, and perform these in theaters in cities, uh, you know, and then he would sell DVDs out front. And the guy was clearing a million dollars a year uh, just you know, just from running his own operation. And when I heard him wow. interviewed, he said, like, look, I was making more money just doing my stage show than I would make from the movie, so why should I do the movie and uh, surrender creative control? Like, I, you know, my life was fine, and I was in a great position to say no, you know? Yeah. He's um, basically the James Brown of black comedy. Yeah. I Except mean, for, of course, the, like, the obvious the connection of being legendary. And I mean, I, I won't vouch for the quality of his work being on the par of James Brown's relative to soul and funk music. But again, that's such a high bar to jump over that I don't think anybody would be called upon to do that. Right, really, really ever, but, uh, ever, ever will again until like until a miracle yeah. happens. But like so, you know, but still like a, a one man show, like a man, well, not a one man show, but a, a really an engine for a, an industry who well, then has opportunities to go mainstream. Yeah, yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Right, absolutely, and he's you know, and he created this network um, for himself, totally outside the mainstream of you know the white entertainment industry, which was not speaking to his audience at all. And he was able to be so successful partly because there's no mainstream entertainment programming uh, that you know that spoke to his audience. So they right, you know right. they and they wanted entertainment. So here came Tyler Perry selling it and selling it as a live show and selling it on DVD uh you know through some there was some kind of subscription mail th- mail DVD thing that he did I, you know I don't I don't know all the details of it but like it was this really you know he had an empire and I think it's you know I think it's still going and I think that that the strength of what he's done um you know, I think the the strength of what he's done and his own his own success now crossing over into mainstream, uh, you know, mainstream studio uh, financed and distributed films uh, speaks for itself. Now, as as for the quality of it, I ca- I can't really say. I mean, I've I've only seen clips of his work, and and some of it, you know, some of it is a little broad, and I have to wonder whether the work itself is kind of propping up these. Uh, is propping up stereotypes, but you know what? Uh, maybe he's just giving the people what they want. Maybe he's just entertaining folks, you know. And I, you know, I, I, I can't really say that that that's that's bad. And but the important thing I think is that it's you know, um, it it really is his product. You know, you know what I mean. And he owns it from end to end. And it's not, um, you know, it's not sort of adulterated by concerns other than the concerns that he wants to bring to it. Right, right, right. I mean, I think that, that finding an audience is a really powerful thing that for an artist to be able to do because it, it really gives you some freedom to really explore some things. Um, I mean, I, there's a lot of people who bemoan when their favorite artists become popular. It's like, oh, man, he became popular, and now I, the work that they're doing is going to be so damaged by this popularity. But there really is a way, especially if you take a certain entrepreneurial responsibility for your work, 
where becoming popular can be the best thing that can happen to you because uh-huh. it can give you a way of, of really building out your whole phantasmagoria. You know, you're, I mean, I'm talking mostly about people who create fiction, uh, but musicians too, and all these other things. You know, really build out your body of work in the public eye yeah. in a place where it's going to be distributed. And I mean, you're you know, your favorite person who becomes popular, that person might then be able to produce more albums or more movies and do more stuff and all this other stuff. Right. I mean, or it I, might, be, I, might be in a yeah. position to encourage work uh, from other people that, you know, mm-hmm. is, you know, who wouldn't necessarily get recognition or something like that. I mean, this is the Harry Potter. It's the uh, Harry Potter trajectory, you know, where right, those, right, right, those right. books just got better. You know, I mean, if you, yep. if that's your thing and, you know, I enjoyed them, uh, like, like number seven is a lot better, is a lot you know better a work of of fiction by any measure than number one is, um, and uh, yeah, and part of it was that you know everyone just got so into it. I mean, I, maybe it's a it's a probably weird fact about or a weird way of looking at my life, but uh, I also have never read the Harry Potter books, so uh, the, you can bookend me. On one hand, I haven't seen The Wire, <laughs> and on the other hand, I haven't read Harry Potter, so I kind of exist between those two things. Right, exactly. Uh, right in the um, <laughs> you know in the uh, in the uh, you know in the interstices between a no holds barred uh, description of urban Baltimore and yeah. <laughs> uh, you know uh, a school of witchcraft and wizardry. Basically, between platform nine and a half, or what have you, and uh, and Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 Exactly. That's where. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where we all are, really. I mean, we have one foot on platform nine and a half, and another platform on MLK Jr. Avenue. Yeah, I, I have a lot of fondness for the city of Baltimore. I won't. I won't diss them anymore. No, I don't. But, I, didn't, uh, I didn't mean to to diss them. I mean, actually, like, <laughs> actually, I think that like. One of the great services that The Wire does is like shows what is actually really sort of beautiful and unique about that place uh, with, uh, you know, specifically that place, um, even while, you know, facing into the challenges that that it faces. I mean, because they're not unique. Got, you know, drugs in cities. Yeah, I'm glad that's oh. just I'm glad that's just Baltimore. You know, yeah. I'm glad it Otherwise, things get pretty rough. Yeah, <laughs> things could get pretty rough in like New York City or you know Hartford. Oh or, man, if they, if they had drugs in Hartford, oh my God, it would be horrible. The I, whole insurance industry would go under. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that the whole insurance industry won't go under sometime in the next, uh, you know, in the next week or two. Well, so, if it does, I blame the drugs. I think it's the drugs that are doing it. We need to get the drugs out of. Just say no. Just say no to drugs and to um, over-leveraging your insurance company and not keeping sufficient capital reserves. So I'm in Los Angeles for my high school reunion, and uh, I was a member Mm -hmm. of the class of 1998. So you can mm-hmm. you can you know date me and figure out my age if you care to, but I if, don't want to date you, Matt. But that's okay. The <laughs> ladies, I'm sure, are lining up around the block. 1998. <laughs> here are some things that happened uh, in 1998 in in uh, fictional uh, in fictional universes. Um, oh wow! The Resident Evil series uh, from Resident Evil Zero. Uh, to Resident Evil Apocalypse is set in 1998. Oh, interesting. Really? Grand, Grand Theft Auto Liberty City Stories is set in 1998. Huh. Uh, v for Vendetta is set in 1998. And huh. Marty McFly Jr. Uh, of Back to the Future Part 2 uh, yep. was born in 1998. Wow. Yeah. Where'd you get that information? That's pretty spectacular. That's from the Wikipedia page for 1998. Oh, let me name drop a little bit from my uh, from my high school reunion because I um, 
I was at dinner at my reunion with uh, Rhea Yarbrough, who's been a guest on the podcast, uh, and Bear McCreary, who's been a guest on the podcast. And Bear is scoring uh, Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles, and he gave me – he told me some information about what's happening – Coming up on Sarah Connor Chronicles, which I cannot divulge to the open internet, but, um, you know, I'll just say that they are actually, they're going to take up the question that we've taken up on the blog about time travel, uh, about the narrative use of time travel, and how there are basically two models, right? There's the Terminator model, and there's the uh, Back to the Future model, where you can, like, disappear. You know, if you shoot your mother in the past, you will, like, gradually fade out. Right, right, right. You know, and so in we, Terminator, yeah. in Terminator, you you seem to continue, you know. Um, yeah. Where and and essentially the the Terminator model, which is actually going to be like explicitly defined in a story, I guess that's airing in a couple weeks on Sarah Connor Chronicles. Uh, in the Terminator model, mo- blah blah blah. In the Terminator model, the, it's more a um, it's more a like I don't even know what to call it. Uh, quantum mechanics model. It, no, it has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. Where <laughs> when you change something in the past, it's not that you disappear; it's that an alternate you is created by right, right. The, by the thing that that changes in the past, and that you know, with further time travel, you and the alternate you could end up uh, coming uh, coming face to face. So let's call this the actually let's call this the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure model. Of, Can we also call it the uh, the C Lab twenty twenty one dodgeball cannon model? Right. <laughs> right. It's less a time machine than it is a dodgeball cannon. <laughs> That's for the five percenters out there. <laughs> Bizarro, I love you, Bizarro. <laughs> I just fade. Fed Turtle face a bunch of peanuts. Anyway, <laughs> hopefully the five people listening to the podcast who love their C Lab are enjoying those references because that's a wonderful show. Um, definitely. But yeah, have you have you given away too much, Matt? Have you given away too many spoiler secrets for the Sarah Connor Chronicles? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think I've given away an entire. I don't think I've given away a single really spoiler. Well, what, well, I'm really excited to watch the show now. What so. exactly constitutes as, what exactly constitutes a spoiler? Yeah, exactly. I'm doing promotion. I'm not spoiling. I mean, like, do I have yeah, to yeah. reveal a, a plot detail in order for it to count as a spoiler? Or, uh, you know, if I were to um, write by just by just saying like, here is an issue it's going to get into, and here is the philosophical stance that they're taking about about this issue, this issue of time travel uh, that afflicts us all. That's a really interesting question because, I mean, I think that if you were, for example, take a uh, picture from off the set of a movie and post it on the internet, not that I would suggest anybody do such things, uh, of course, um, I don't think anyone would describe that picture as a spoiler unless it revealed plot information, right? Right, right, exactly, unless it's like – you know, unless it's a picture of a family tree with, uh, you know, Anakin Skywalker <laughs> at the top and, like, Luke Skywalker at the bottom, you know? What? Are you telling me? Oh, my God. Spoiler alerts. Yeah, Jeez. sorry. sorry. <laughs> God, I have a problem with that, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, spoilers. Spoilers are hilarious. 
Definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I don't know. My favorite spoiler, I may, maybe I've talked about this on the podcast before, but my favorite incident with spoilers was uh, back in college, I took a class on cognitive science, right, about like the brain and how the brain works and how you figure out what the brain does. And for the class, we had to watch the movie Memento. There was like a screening where you could go and watch the movie Memento, which is a wonderful movie, and I highly recommend it for anyone who, who likes movies that are thrilling without necessarily being like horror thrillers. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of people, of course, didn't go to the screening of Memento because a lot of people were lazy and didn't go to class and didn't bother to check up on these things. And so I went to a section, which is a little discussion section with a grad student after the class on, on Friday, and she started talking about the movie and started talking about what happens at the end of the movie. And this guy in the class was like, whoa, 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 like spoilers, you know, whoa, like let's not talk about how the movie ends. And it's like it was required for the class. Right. And like furthermore, like knowing Memento, it's particularly hilarious that you can't talk about the end of the movie because the movie goes backwards and it's like almost impossible to really talk about the movie without talking about what happens at the end of the movie. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a huge reveal at the end, which we will not yeah, reveal yeah. which we will not reveal on the uh on the podcast. No, no, no. I, I would you know, I would I would sooner never see C Lab again than to than to do such a thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, that's kind of funny, I think, because when you talk about okay, it's really uh, you know what you know what I'll reveal it. It's revealed that uh, Luke that Anakin Skywalker is the guy from Memento's father. God damn it! Why? Is, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> but anyway, like we're gonna get more angry emails. Send your angry email to podcast <laughs> at overthinkingit.com. But it, it's really hard to talk about movies if you can't talk about the endings. Right. Like that's a big problem. Well, I and, think that, and that's. Like, I think that the idea. I think it's a flawed idea. The idea that like what movies provide us is first and foremost, you know, surprise at the minutia of the plot. Right, 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 right. You know, and that, like, yeah. that an obsession with that is actually the enemy of, you know, of any kind of larger scale thinking about movies, even like, you know, even to the level of, like, movie reviews, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, I mean, it definitely makes it difficult. It's it's different, I think, when you're talking about a series, especially, like, a mystery or a series driven by secrets that need to be revealed and things like that. Right. So I understand why people don't want to have something spoiled in, you know, something like Lost, if they if they even have spoilers in Lost, if it even counts. Um, but, like, there's no reason that I should worry about someone spoiling, like, the end of one of the Harry Potter movies. I guess that's a series, too. But, like, if I'm watching Indian Angels and the Crystal Skull and I'm already sitting there watching it and someone, like, whispers to me how it ends, like, is that really going to meaningfully affect how much I like the movie or not, or is it more going to be dictated by all of the tens of dozens of things that Belinky has pointed out already on the blog are wrong with Crystal Skull? Um, but that, of course, is neither here nor there. Speaking Still. of which, did you see? Uh, did you see um, South Park? Uh, oh God. Oh, God, I did not watch South Park, but I'll tell you, my girlfriend watched that episode of South Park, and she was not happy. Um, that, I mean, I don't know. It, it's, it's, I was talking, you know what, this is an interesting topic, because I was talking to her about this. Um, I mean, do you want to explain briefly what the episode of South Park is about? Well, is, would I be giving away spoilers? Okay, South Park, spoiler <laughs> alert. If you want to be yeah. surprised, if you haven't heard it in the media already, because it's all over the place. Um, so, uh... It, there's a the B plot of this uh, of this episode is that or maybe this is the A plot is that um, there's this sort of there's this rape plot where the boys become traumatized as though they've witnessed a rape and you realize that it is the the rape of the Indiana Jones franchise by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas uh, over over time and that um, 
this this uh, what is actual in actual actuality a metaphorical uh, violation is actually depicted in three scenes, which are uh, uh, homages to. Um, different movies. One is Deliverance. One is that movie with Jodie Foster. Oh, Which God. one? Taxi uh, Taxi Driver? No, no, no. no, what no, no, no. The, oh. one, the one with the pinball machine where where Jodie Foster – it's this very brutal scene where Jodie Foster is like – is kind of pushed down on a pinball machine and raped. I, God, I can't, oh, I can't remember it. Uh, yeah, I've not seen this one. I don't think it's Nell, right? No, or Contact. No, no. It's not. It's definitely <laughs> not Contact. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, and the, uh, the first one, I actually, I didn't recognize the film. I did not, uh, I couldn't get the film. Um, so right. Uh, you know, um, and I guess like, well, well, what is there to object to about it? I guess it kind of like trivialize, it trivializes any number of things. Uh, Mm -hmm. but like, I mean, I guess I mean, let me let me let me jump in with some of the things some of the things that um, I was thinking about about it and yeah. the things that I talked about with her. I mean, the the first one, and this is the one that the South Park people are probably the least concerned with, um, is the issue of uh, if you go to certain websites, for example, that that speak to a primarily female audience on like politically sensitive subject matter, um, you'll often get a warn uh, something of, of a trigger warning, right? Um, which is a warning that signifies that the material that you're about to read, if you've had a sexually abusive experience. Um, may be something that triggers your, you know, PTSD or some sort of uh, cognitive difficulty. You know, cognitive difficulty. That's not what I mean. But like, will trigger these these traumatic experiences for you, and will create this like unpleasant uh, situation. So like, yes, there's a whole large group of people out there who really couldn't watch this. You know, couldn't watch this episode. Now, of course, um, South Park doesn't really deal in that sort of thing, and I don't think they should. But at the same time, it's kind of a signal. Of of their own the own limitations of the scope of their show that this is not a group of people with whom they are worried right like they're not worried about showing a graphic rape scene um, on South Park a because it's South Park and they're supposed to be as as edgy as possible but like b because like they don't really think that like women who have been victims of sexual assault are watching their show the accused um, the accused and I think that what. The accused. What? Nine, uh, 1988. The accused. Oh, the accused is the. I was hoping it was Nell. Kelly, <laughs> Kelly McGillis but, and Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. Anyway. But I think that the, the other issue, the other issue here about these things is that, like, I don't know. I run into a lot. I do. I do comedy in Boston, and I run into a lot of jokes about rape. Like, it's a very common subject for for jokes, for sketches, for things like this. And um, it's it's a difficult, you know, as a comedian and as an improv comedian in particular, we spend a lot of time and energy trying to boil down like why things are funny. Like, why is a given joke funny? What? How can we extract the core of it? And then once we have the core of it, how can we heighten that core and bring it up? And it's it's difficult to pin down exactly why people think rape is funny. Um, and I don't. Necessarily Necessarily think it's just because they're sexist or just because they, you know, they don't sympathize or they're cruel. Although that's part of it, I do think it speaks to a fundamentally like it's kind of a, a, a signifier signified that, that works differently. The the word means something different to these people. Um, I mean, I think that probably the reason why it's funny to people is that these are often people who themselves don't have sex and want to have sex. And so the idea of some, yeah. And so the idea of somebody who doesn't want to have sex, but has sex is an inversion. It becomes sort of like, you know, a guy walking around in a desert Island in a smoking jacket with a, with a, a pipe and a snifter of brandy. You know, it's like, Oh, like it's an inversion. Right. 
um, except that it's not really an inversion. You know, it's not the inversion would be, you know, some guy who just like rolls into a party and is kind of down and has like women throwing themselves at him. And he's like, okay, and he goes home and that's and does it consensually. I mean, this particular experience, I mean, I think that there's something kind of unspeakable about it. And um, I think that and I think that also, and I'll stop ranting about it pretty soon, but like you've seen over the, I remember when the song date rape came out, like the, was it the sublime song? Yeah. Date rape came out back in the nineties. Um, it Which was like a, a big revenge, deal, you know, I mean, it's a revenge fantasy. Yes, exactly. And I, I don't want to speak ill or, or well of the song in particular. Um, but I remember when it came out, there was still a lot of discussion over whether date rape was real rape. Um, and I remember there was a lot of like, talk about this stuff and i remember when we were in college there's the talk about drinking and all this stuff um and i think that what that says to me most importantly is that over the course of the last 15 or 20 years people have become a lot more comfortable talking about rape which is a good thing if they're doing it for the right reasons you know it's a good thing that people don't have to suffer in silence it's a good thing that it's not something that people feel ashamed about as much to the extent that they have to hide that it happened to them it's really good that we don't live in a place where women are punished for it or at least where we hope and strive such that women are not punished for it. But there's a, 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 a counterpoint to the fact that people talk about it a lot, which is that it has this existence in the minds and the phantasmagoria of people and the ideas of the symbols and the vocabulary um, of their minds because it's something that's talked about, but because it's not, they're not operating on the level of the people who are actually experiencing it for obvious reasons, I mean, it would be tremendously unpleasant, for one. Um, they have this fictionalized idea of it. You know, they have this, like, fictionalized idea of what rape is, and, and they see it as this sort of inverted sexual relationship um, that has a kind of comical quality to it. Um, and, I mean, I think that what I, – I don't want to sit here and, and, like, and bitch about it and say, like, this is bad. I mean, it kind of is, but it's not – the fault of these particular people that they find things funny. I don't think it's anyone's fault that they find something funny because you don't have a lot of control over what you find funny. Um, I think that what it calls for is we need to invent or, or create like a new cultural way of like joking about and thinking about sexual consent that lets people feel good and happy and laugh at like, you know, good, happy, positive, you know, sexual situations. Um, but that doesn't create the same bucket that puts all sexual sexual situations into it. Like another example is is the obsession with the teacher student stuff that you see all over the place. It's like every couple of weeks there's another story of a teacher who had sex with a student, and there's this whole thing. It's like, well, if it's a woman having sex with a boy, then it's fine, and I wish it was me. And if it's a guy having sex with a girl, then it's bad, and that's a double standard. That's another. Um, thing. You ever go- I mean, obviously, that's another show that South Park did. Oh, they did that show. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not surprised. The, the, the title yeah. The title of the show was nice right because when the guy when the guy goes to report his his uh his um you know his violation by a teacher by a female teacher uh the cops go around and it's like oh yeah 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 what's the problem was she ugly no 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 she's quite attractive nice yeah. I, I don't know i mean for me the the, it's a char- the next it's step char- seems characteristically yeah. sensitive joke from south park <laughs> Well, that's true. I mean, you shouldn't blame South Park for these things, but I think that there might be room there to – I mean, I, I believe that culture and writing and all these things is generative, right, and that you can create space. 
and, and you create creative space that, that people who come along and innovate and come up with new ideas and new ways of explaining things and who, who you know, connect new meanings to things are, are, are sort of building part of the whole project, right? Are building the whole project of discussing everything, explaining everything, and that someone can come along and explain something that had never previously been explained and now everybody can understand it in a different way. And I think that there's room out there for a comedian to do that or for someone to do that and, and to try to sort of separate the two buckets of or multiple buckets of sexual experience you know there's this idea that because they used to all fall under the same taboo that they're all funny in the same way they all should be talked about in the same way when really you know i don't think that the experiences really have all that much in common although i've been fortunate enough not to be um subject to um the the more traumatic uh experiences there but that's me trying to sort of say you know what south park I, I don't. I never want to criticize people for doing things that may or may not um, be, you know, socially acceptable in in an art, a piece of art, because I don't really think that that's productive, and and the the risk of doing it is much greater than the benefit that you would ever get of of eliminating things, except in the most extreme of cases, like when you're saying, hey, this is a hilarious play called Let's Assassinate Matt Rather, um, about like a whole bunch of people like very realistically plotting to shoot Matt Rather. That might not be a great idea. I don't it know though. There was a, there was a play, an underground play in New York called I'm Going to Kill the President, uh, which title oh, alone yeah. is, is in fact, treason, you know, is a federal crime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, the... Um, right, right, right. And, you know, it, it was in a secret location and you, like, met a masked operative on the street and they, like, pointed you to another operative who pointed you to another operative who asked you if you were from law enforcement and then, like, sent you, <laughs> sent you up to the theater. And, like, the, the, the experience, this play experience included people chanting all together, I'm going to kill the president. I'm going to kill the president. Uh, you know, so I guess, I mean, even, I'm you know, I'm going to assassinate the president maybe has a, uh, I mean, I suppose there's a... That's a legitimate artistic purpose, yeah. Well, right, the, yeah, there's, be, there's a, there's a political... Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. that it, not that it, yeah, not that you know we should carry it out. It's just that, like, you know, it's about that thing was about speech and about you know politics and and things like this. But yeah, no, I guess yeah. I guess so. I, I hope there's not a play called "Let's Go Assassinate Matt Rather." No, I mean I'm certainly not writing it. That's um, good. Although you know. I might help them workshop it if they feel like they're not portraying you flatteringly enough. I guess I guess uh, so. Like, <laughs> I, I'm glad you're not writing it because if you were to write it, it would be good, and I would not want a uh, my, you know I don't want the play at all. Like, much less a very convincing and compelling play called "Let's Assassinate Matt Rather." <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I don't know. I mean, the main thing is that I think that the Indiana Jones rape stuff, and I didn't know previously that they were specifically referencing other rape scenes in other movies. Yeah, but I do think that that the way that people liberally joke about rape shows a, a kind of failure on behalf of comedians to create a space for that is, that is distinct between consensual sexual activity and then separate places for other kinds of sexual activity that experientially by all accounts are really you know apples and oranges night and day like not at all the same yeah you know what i mean like like i mean i can joke about um you know i can make a joke about you know uh, i can make a, I can, like will ferrell for example I, he can do a soccer movie he can do a basketball movie he can do an ice skating movie and like they're all pretty much the same jokes because it all fits into the same bucket like sports are all the same bucket um but you know like i wouldn't necessarily make a movie about will ferrell you know getting involved in like you know a series of backyard brawl like backyard uh, street fights where people were like actually killed um because i feel like that wouldn't count as a sport although for all i know they may make that and may make lots of money um i don't know what you would call it um 
perhaps uh, kicking and screaming too. Uh, <laughs> but this has been this has been a very serious overthinking it podcast. We've been considering a lot of the very serious challenges that people face uh, in the sort of expanding the diversity of entertainment and, well, and, and standing, up- you know, and trying to balance in the you know the narrow space between a platform nine and three quarters and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> Boulevard. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, us being you know rough and tumble folks as we are, right, uh, <laughs> right, yeah. Um, obviously, we're really the people that you should all be listening to in determining your opinions on how to make these things. Right, absolutely. Uh, to, yeah, like, yeah. If your life, if you have any situation in your life that is exceptionally tough, you know, yeah. that's what I've always Just, said. Like, come talk to me because let me tell you, <laughs> I can relate. They were they were out of organic chev. You know, at the market the other day, and it was like I, you know, it was like I was raped, you know, by by. See, this is exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is exactly what I'm talking about. It is not at all like you were raped. It is much more like you had a regrettable sexual experience that was consensual with somebody you weren't really attracted to. It's a very different, it's a very different proposition. You know, like like it's very, it's like oh man, it's like I got drunk and slept with the wrong person by accident. It's not like, oh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Part of it is now that we have this very short dramatic that's word. That's comedy. <laughs> but I'm ch- Oh, I man. I mean, how do you, you know, and how do you sleep with the wrong person by accident? You know, it's not like, oh, that's just like of the three vaginas in front of me, I chose the <laughs> wrong one. <laughs> Was it like a Price is Right game? It's like Plinko? <laughs> Yeah, wow, Plinko is going to be my new name for sex. <laughs> you know, I heard that at one point that the Plinko board is actually rigged is what one I heard. Um, have you heard this? No. Yeah, I no. heard that the Plinko yeah, I heard that the Plinko board is rigged, that there's a switch on it that if it gets switched on, the thing will go into the big $1,000 thing in the middle. And that there was once an episode of The Price is Right where someone won like something like – I think the bill might be $10,000, like $50,000 in Plinko by dropping five consecutive uh, pucks into that little one in the center. And that they, they gave him the money, but they didn't air that part of the episode. Right. Um, and they reset it and they had him do it over and he won like 1000 um, Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that could go into the great annals if we were ever to write like a Mondo post of the great for, forbidden episodes of game shows. Of course, the greatest being that prices, uh, the press your luck thing that we've all talked about so much. Um, but yeah, yeah, I miss Bob Barker. I know, right? <laughs> so can, as, can as we, we, I mean, I guess as we close, I will, I will remind people to spay and neuter their pets. It's important, you know? No, it's really, very... I mean, it really is important for the, you know, to prevent a lot of needless suffering, uh, mm. you know, of animals. It really is important to, to spay and neuter your pets. I mean, really, uh, no, no joke. I, Play us out, Rob Roddy. <laughs> All right. This has been the Overthinking Podcast. Uh, I am Matthew Rather. Contact me at Rather, W-R-A-T-H-E-R, at overthinkingit.com. And I, with me is Pete Fenzel. How would you like people to, to contact? <laughs> How do you want them to contact <laughs> well, you? 
I would like them to email me at F-E-N-Z-E-L at overthinkingit.com. And also keep the entries coming to the Women in Action Screenwriting Contest. You've got a couple weeks left. We've got some great entries already. I'm looking to complement that with some more entries, get some great uh, plays and, and movies that we can talk about on the air and talk about on our website. Um, I think this is some really great stuff, and we've seen some really great stuff. And thanks for submitting. And, and that's it, uh, womeninactioncontest at gmail.com. And just a, just a little hint, don't make any jokes about rape in your script. Yeah, that's pretty much grounds for disqualification. That, right, exactly. Like that would be that would not be even if they are homages to other movies. I don't know if that may I mean, I don't know if that makes it better. I I mean, at least I think it gives a sense of like aesthetic distance where where it's like, well, okay, like this representational choice was was deliberate. You know, it's not this wasn't something knee jerk that we were that we were reaching for. Like, there's a larger project here about the, the representation of sexual violation in popular entertainment, mm-hmm. I, which I, is something like, that we can all get to another night. Right? Exactly. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. God, I started podcasting again. Didn't mean to. Uh, <laughs> didn't mean to do that. If you have questions for the podcast, send them in to uh, podcast at overthinkingit.com. And if you'd like to record a voicemail to be played back on the show, you can call. Uh, area code 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. Be sure to give a name or pseudonym. 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 It's the proper. You're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> Damn right. I'm an idiot. You see? I gave you that opening. <laughs> Ham fisted. Uh, tell us who you are and tell us where you're calling from just because we are interested. And hey, uh, passive-aggressively, would it kill you to go on iTunes, search for Overthinking It, and uh, leave us some nice reviews there? That would be – that's more than almost uh, – that would do more than almost anything else to bring us to the attention of new listeners. And uh, the more – we'll go where the people are, you know. So the more people we know are downloading the podcast on a weekly basis, um, the more time we are eager to put into it because we want to speak to that audience. Uh, you know, because like Tyler Perry, uh, getting popular is really the best thing that could happen to us. Yes, this is correct. And so, like Tyler Perry, we all live in a house of pain. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, visit us on the web, uh, overthinkingit.com, the blog that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. For Pete Fenzel, I am Matt Rather from the home of the homeless. And for Matt Rather, I'm Pete Fenzel. All <laughs> oh, right. No, that's the idea. That, that's a way of signing off that says both of our names, right? Without us both having, without us having to do it. Like, All right, we'll say it again. Say it again. No, no, no. It's just, I did. You know, it's ruined now. It's totally gone. I, you know, I feel like we 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 just should put it to bed. <laughs> <laughs>